As Jason mentioned a few minutes ago, we are starting a new series today called Money Mavericks. Um, and uh, it's a three-part series talking about money. And we know that the church talks about money a lot. At least uh, that's the public perception. And uh, we, uh, we, we feel like that's actually probably not true enough in some cases. Uh, and hopefully the way we talk about it over the next few weeks will not be um, in the way that creeps people out quite so much. Because we are creeped out by that as well. <laughs> uh, and you know, one of the things that creeps me out a little bit when people say this, and you can tell me if you agree, how many of you have heard somebody say about money, it's all God's, none of it's ours? Have you ever heard that? Does that creep you out just the tiniest little bit? It bugs me a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, that is unequivocally what the Bible says. <laughs> I mean, over and over and over and over, in, in verse after verse, that's what the Bible says. Cattle on a thousand hills, you know. It's just everywhere, including in, in our call to worship psalm today that starts out, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So I was thinking about that. I don't really want to be creeped out by a truth that is just rampant in the Bible. I think that would make me a bad Christian <laughs> um, if I'm not already for other reasons. Um, I figured it out. This is why that creeps me out. It's not because people say it's all God's. It's because of the next sentence that comes out of their mouth, which is what? Send it to me, <laughs> right? Your money is not your own. It's all God's. So put it in the offering plate. <laughs> And we'll collect it and do what we want with it. Or, your money's not yours, it's all God's. So send it to me, Joe Televangelist. Right? And I think that's what kind of bothers me about it. And so I want to tell you right up front today, uh, and hopefully this will put your mind at ease somewhat, that my definition of a successful sermon, one that gets through to you, is not measured in any way by how much money is put in the offering baskets at the end of the service, okay? And I'm not lying to you, that's the absolute truth. I want you to all go like this with your fist. Can you all make a fist for me? My definition of success, Steve, uh, my definition of success in today's sermon is not how much money you put in the offering plate today. My definition of success at the end of today's sermon is whether or not you can do this. Right. I know you can all do that. I, just, I saw you all just do that. <laughs> Remember that you can do that. Success for me today will be getting you to understand and believe that you need to let go of everything. Let me tell you a story about... Uh, when I bought my first DVD player. Now you have to understand, I am what uh, sociologists and economists call an early adopter when it comes to technology. I bought a DVD player uh, eight or nine years ago now before anybody I knew had a DVD player. And to illustrate to you how much of an early adopter I was, I want to tell you that I got this DVD player for the incredible low, low price and I'm not joking to you, this was a very good price of $189 for 
for my first DVD player. Now, you couldn't get those things for less than 250 but I went to, I think it was ubid.com or something, and, and got the best deal I, could, I had ever seen on a DVD player. In fact, um, as I told my wife rather sheepishly, I didn't even mean to buy it. I put this bid in knowing that it would never actually win. Uh, and lo and behold, it did. And that $189 went, uh, well, I was going to say out of our checking account, but it went onto our credit card <laughs> bill at that time. So we got this DVD player, and uh, I immediately knew when I opened it up that I needed a new TV now. <laughs> the television we had was not suitable for state-of-the-art digital video. It wasn't big enough, wasn't pretty enough. So we went out and bought a, a TV. At, uh, we were living in Las Vegas at the time, and I think we went to Sam's Club and got a TV. It was like three or four hundred dollars. It wasn't it wasn't expensive by today's TV standards, but uh, it definitely erased some of the bargain that I had gotten on the DVD player itself. So I brought it home, plugged the DVD player into it, put on like Tombstone or something, and it just didn't sound nearly good enough. <laughs> so I, ended, I went back to ubid.com and... Uh, put in a bid on an, uh, a home theater system. Not a huge one, a mini one, you know. Another three or four hundred bucks later, we finally had the perfect home theater for our tiny little one-bedroom apartment <laughs> in Las Vegas. And I, whenever anybody would come over, and uh, none of you visited me except I think Jason and Lisa came and visited us at that time. Um, whenever anybody would come over, I would put on Tombstone and turn that sucker on and when those horses come out, when they start charging in the town, just the whole apartment would rattle, you know. Have you ever experienced that? I call it stuff expansion. <laughs> you get a new car, and suddenly not only do you have to make those payments, but your insurance goes up. You, you can't drive a dirty new car, so you have to wash it every week. We live in Rochester, so you have to get the expensive wash that goes underneath so the salt doesn't rust it out. You have to put the high-octane gas in it. You get a bigger house, and suddenly those rooms seem kind of empty. You have to buy more furniture. You have to clean it more. You get a new computer, and suddenly your monitor's not big enough or flat enough, or wireless enough. <laughs> you buy a new guitar, talking to myself here. <laughs> Mike's giving me the rock hands up there. You buy a new guitar, and suddenly your amp just doesn't quite cut it anymore. And then you need an extra pedal to make that tone just perfect. That's the way life works, man, right? Stuff expansion. I think of it like a planet, right? I can't take credit for this analogy, but physicists know that the bigger and more massive a body is, the more gravitational pull it has, and the more stuff it sucks toward itself. And the more stuff you have, the bigger your 
ownership planet becomes, the stronger its pull and the more stuff you have to add to it to get it just the way you want it. So if that weren't enough to, to convince you a little bit about ownership and, and what it means to be, you know, to have riches in the contemporary sense of the word. Let's take a minute and talk about what the Bible says about possessions. Now I already tipped the hand a little bit and, and, and confessed to you that that creepy God, everything is God's, is actually a highly biblical thing to say and believe. But, and Jason mentioned this a, a few weeks or months ago, uh, that the Bible has 2,350 verses in it on money and possessions. That's more than twice as much as all the verses on faith and love put together. Teachings on money and possession comprised about 15% of Jesus' teachings, which is more than he taught on heaven and hell combined. Now, in evangelical Christianity, what do we talk more about, money or heaven and hell? Heaven and hell. Specifically, I have three passages that, that I want to read to you um, this morning. And, and honestly, these passages preach themselves so well that I'm not going to have a whole lot of comment on, on them. And you can either think that that's the, the great pastor cop-out or, or that it's a brilliant sermonic technique. Uh, I'll let you be the judge of that. But I have three passages. One is from the Old Testament in the wisdom literature. One is from the teachings of Jesus and the last one is from a letter of St. Paul. The first one is from the book of Ecclesiastes, written, we think, by Solomon, the richest man in the world at the time. And here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 16. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This also is vanity. And let me pause here and talk about that word vanity. This is not like looking in a mirror type of vanity that he's talking about. This word is, um, I think the Hebrew word is like hebel, and it's, it's almost an automatopoeia. It means, means like breathy, hebel. And uh, it's actually where the name Abel comes from in the, in the Bible. Um, which happens to be my son's name, not for any theological reason, just because we like the way it sounded. Uh, but it, it's, um, we were just watching uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King last night, and there's that scene where they're going through the, this passageway where all the, the cursed dead are, and, and all these kind of ghost-like things are swirling around. And there's this scene where Gimli, the, the dwarf, starts like... Like trying to blow away this this vapor. When we when he says everything is vanity, which is sometimes translated meaningless, in the NIV I think it's meaningless. He says this also is vanity. He's saying it's vaporous. It's like a fog. There's no grabbing it. So let's go on. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. We know about that, right? And what gain has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of laborers, 
whether they eat little or much, but the surfeit or excess of the rich will not let them sleep. Solomon's saying that our appetites are endless. That's, we know that that's true about food and sex and some other things. You know, you satisfy that appetite one day and pretty soon, depending on the person, you're hungry for it again. Solomon's saying it's also true about our possessions. There's a grievous ill that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Though they are parents of children, they have nothing in their hands. As they came from their mother's womb, so they shall go again, naked as they came. They shall take nothing for their toil, which they may carry away with their hands. This also is a grievous ill. Just as they came, so shall they go. And what gain do they have from toiling for the wind? Ecclesiastes is not a terribly optimistic book of the Bible. That's why cynical jerks like me enjoy it so much. <laughs> What's he saying? What is the common proverbial saying that we use in English today that, that he's basically, that comes from that passage? You can't take it with you when you go. So our appetites are endless. It's the DVD player corollary, right? You get one thing, you just need more. And, and when you're dead, you're dead. And it ain't going with you. Let me move on to the, the parable of Jesus that I want to read to you. This is from Luke chapter 12. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I could basically leave right now and just let that be the last thing I said. That would be pretty good. But I won't. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. I have a DVD player, but I don't have any nice speakers to play the sound through. That was an interpolation. <laughs> you didn't know. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Jesus makes the very simple observation that all of us would nod our heads about, that life is about more than what you own. Right? Can we all nod our heads about that? How many of us actually nod our lives about that? That life is about more than what you own. And once again, he makes that terribly optimistic point. 
that Solomon made in Ecclesiastes, that when you die, you die. What is there to do except maybe leave it to your children? If you leave enough to your children, the government's going to take half of it from them. So. That's, that's why we have the Paris Hilton problem. Did you know that? This is completely a rabbit trail. I'm sorry. But <laughs> the, that rich Hilton dude does not want the government to tax half of his wealth when it's passed on to his children after he dies. So he's passing it on to them now, and they're driving around like drunken fools. Anyway, I, I'm not sure what that has to say about <laughs> God owns it all. But, but that's the truth. Uh, anyway, no more politics. I think it's best if we move on uh, to the other New Testament passage, which is one of the letters of Paul. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor at Ephesus, and he's, talking, he's telling Timothy what to teach the people in his church. And so in a way, he's, you know, we, we believe that he's sort of telling us as pastors what we should teach you and really what we as Christians should be teaching each other because that burden of responsibility is not solely on people who went to college for an extra few years. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. We've seen hints of this in other passages, you know, the one that I, the one that I just read that was a parable of Jesus, and one that you also may be familiar with that I know the kids are working on right now, which is the that do not store up for yourselves treasures, in uh, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You all heard that, right? I didn't use that this morning because I didn't want to bore you with it. But, and then I went and said it anyway. Uh, but that's kind of what Paul is getting at here again. But that's not all he's getting at, I don't think. Listen to what he says at the end there storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That, that speaks to the kind of heavenly treasure thing, I, I believe. But then he also says, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Basically, that being free from this kind of ownership disease, this grab for possessions, is not only a spiritual thing for later, it's also a very practical thing for right now. Take hold of the life that really is life. Implying that a life lived after wealth and possessions and riches is a life that really is not life. Does that make sense? And for anybody who said and tuned out as soon as that first clause came out, as for those who in the present age are rich, how many people said, I'm not rich, and then was like, We're not, none of us are rich um, compared to the Hilton family. All of us are rich compared to, you know, how many millions of people in the third world countries, right? So I don't want to beat you over the head with the 
the starving children. Um, and I don't mean to make light of it either. But as to those who in the present day are rich, I think that is us. I don't think any of us are off the hook for that. See, we think that having more money or owning more things is a path to freedom, right? If only I had more money, I could pay off all my debts, I could buy a bigger house, I could have the freedom to go to a better part of the state where the schools are better, my kids would be smarter. We think that it frees us up to accomplish anything that we want. But I want you to think for a second back to the passing of the peace, about that $5,000 that you miraculously received. And you don't have to show hands here, but how many of you um, would have spent, made your first thing something you purchased for yourself? I'll show my hand, but you don't have to show yours. Um, how many of you, and this, this requires a little bit more thought, how many of you thought of something that you would spend that money on, and now that you think about it, that would have been a pathway into needing to spend more money, perhaps even beyond the $5,000. Somebody said, a down payment on my first house, which I think is an excellent way to spend money if somebody gives you $5,000. But really, that would be a way of spending $5,000 so that later you can spend another $95,000 or more, right? <laughs> Did anybody else have that, that experience? If, you, if you're honest with yourself, uh, I would have spent that money and it would have put me in a pit. Here's the truth. Ownership brings bondage, not freedom. The more stuff you have, the more control it has over you. And it takes a lot of skill, a skill that really escapes almost all of us, to manage money and wealth in a way that actually leads to more freedom instead of more bondage. If nothing more, that clenched fist attitude gets worse when we have more stuff. You have to hold it tighter. Pretty soon you're wrapping your arms around it. It's not just what you can hold in your hand, it's what you can batten down with your whole body. And, and if nothing else, this kind of attitude distracts your energy and your resources and your attitude from the matters of the heart, from the matters of spirit, from the kingdom of God. Do you know that during the Crusades, when Christians were making it a point to uh, take Jerusalem back by force in an act of war, they kind of ran out of enough people to, to kill all the people in their way. 
So they hired these mercenaries, crusade pirates. And being good Middle Ages Christians, they did not want to hire people to go kill others who were not also Christians, so they decided they needed to baptize the mercenaries before they could send them off on their uh, killing missions. And they would baptize these mercenaries, and the mercenaries would say, okay, you can baptize us, but my sword is not going under that water. And so they'd baptize the mercenaries, and they would hold their swords out of the water. Now in America, in America, most of us do not have that obsession with swords, right? Weaponry of another kind, perhaps. Um, but we don't have that attitude with our swords so much. What do we have that attitude with? I didn't bring mine with me. Our wallets. Pretend I have a wallet right here. And of course, not literally, but I think in practice, we say, yes, baptize me, wash me, Jesus, make me a new creation, but I'm holding this wallet above the water because I'm not ready to surrender that part just yet. And we have lots of excuses that, are, that make sense on the face of them. You know, I don't trust the church to do the right thing with my money. I can handle it better. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things you can say that make sense and, and in some cases are true, but the reality is you're still holding that wallet out above the water while you're getting dipped. So here's what I'd like you to do. You have a bulletin with you. Uh, and somewhere on there is some blank space. And so I want you to tear off a piece of the bulletin that has some blank space on it. And there's some pens there you have as well. And in a minute, I want you to write down something that you are going to give away this week. Okay? It could be a book, a CD or a DVD. It could be all the cash in your savings account. You can donate it to a library, give it to a charity, give it to a friend. I don't care what you do with it as long as it's this, right? The only rule is it has to be something that you wouldn't have already given away, all right? And honestly, it could be a measuring cup from your drawer because you have two of them. This is not, this is not graduate level giving, okay? <laughs> This is kindergarten-level giving. That's all I'm asking of you. And what I want you to do is write that, write that down on a piece of paper. We'll, maybe we'll play that, that uh, Pink Floyd cut again and give you a second to think about it. And then when you've written it, I want you to hold it in your fist like this, okay? So take maybe two minutes and, and uh, write that down on that piece of paper. So take your piece of paper, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to, um, seriously now guys, come on. I want you to hold that piece of paper in your fist, all right? And I don't want you to let go of it until we take the offering. And yes, that's about 20 minutes from now. All right, I want you to hold on to that. 
You didn't write your name on it or anything, right? If you did, you can scribble it out, but then grab it again. And when we, take, when we give our offering later, uh, whether or not you're putting any money in the basket, I want you to drop that in the basket, okay? I want you to practice that literal, physical act of letting go, unclenching your fist, right? And next week, we'll talk a little bit more about giving specifically. And the following week, we'll talk a little bit about planning and what, you know, what, it, what it looks like to have a sensible financial situation. You know, the, the ultimate open hand act in all of history was the incarnation. Jesus being in very nature God, emptying himself to be made human, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. And that and our faith in him and in that act is what motivates us in all that we do as believers. And that's why every week at Artisan we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ at the Lord's table. So for the remainder of our service, this table is open to you. If you're following Jesus, you can come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice, remembering his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, and remembering your devotion to him, his lordship over your life, all of it, even your wallet even that thing that's balled up in your hand right now, and everything in between. Hold on to that piece of paper and let's pray. Our God, we do confess to you that we've held our wallets out, out of the baptismal waters. And it's my prayer, God, that you would bless each person here who is holding a piece of paper in his or her hand. That that simple act of giving, whether it's a measuring cup from their kitchen drawer because they have two, or whether it's the contents of their savings account because they have plenty of money, anything in between, that you would bless that act of giving and that that act of release of the clenched fist would be something that takes hold not just in their household, not just in their possessions or their bank accounts or whatever it is they're giving, but in their heart that it would be the first act in a new life, a new lifestyle that releases the need to own everything. And that by that changed lifestyle, that new heart, each person here would be a part of making our world better. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to go write down my piece of paper and put it in my fist. And uh, the table's open for the rest of our service now and uh, even as we're singing.